what you had before was Comey FBI director, and what you've got now is Comey Unbound. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to a special edition of The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by a new guest who I am very pleased to welcome to the table, uh, Ben Wittes, who is Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at Brookings and is the Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. Also joining us in a little bit will be Colin Call, who is co-editor for FP's Shadow Government blog with Julie Smith and Derek Chalet. He is currently a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in the Security Studies program. And David Sanger is here, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. And from beautiful Palo Alto, Corey Shockey, no doubt delighted to be as far from Washington as possible today, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Uh, ER nerds, these are trying times right now. If you need something to cheer you up, write us and maybe you'll get an ER mug. We need our ER nerds now more than ever. Email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. This is a special edition of the ER addressing the events in Washington this week and their broader implications. And because we are foreign policy, I'd like to frame the discussion in the context of how this makes America look in the world. Um, Corey and I, who are linked, you know, uh, spiritually as well as via this podcast, both have articles up on the FP site right now that are talking a little bit about how this makes us look. Corey, maybe you could frame our discussion in terms of the international consequences of what has happened in Washington with regard to the firing of FBI Director Comey. Yeah, I think there are two big near-term effects. And the first is that this is going to keep America inward-focused, and um, it's sucking the air out of all sorts of important conversations we ought to carefully be considering, like, for example, how to knit together our North Korea policy with the dovish bent of the newly elected president of South Korea, or whether adding forces to our Afghanistan strategy is is uh, taking it in a new direction after 16 years or is just more of the same. So, so the first thing is it keeps us inwardly focused. That inward focus creates enormous opportunities for our adversaries. And the way I think about it is that, you know, the American public is actually this election notwithstanding, quite willing to be actively engaged in the world and to use military force to shape the international order. But that relies on the president engaging with the public, making his case, arguing why it needs doing, that he has a plan to do it, and that the costs are commensurate with the benefits to us. It's almost impossible for me to imagine President Trump having that kind of sustained conversation with the American public in the midst of the cacophony that he himself creates. Um, and the second big national security consequence is that this, you know, looking more like Turkey's leader 
Erdogan or um, Vladimir Putin, then he looks like the prime minister of Estonia or the Netherlands, makes it very difficult for America's democratic allies to to look good by standing up next to the American president. And that means that a whole bunch of things that the United States actually needs our allies help on get more costly to get that help on. Yeah. And the the real-time repercussions of this are happening as we talk. And if you look at the piece that I wrote, which is called Is America a Failing State? I actually spoke to a diplomat um, from a, a, a neighboring friendly country in this hemisphere who said, we've had, you know, uh, uh, unreliable uh, tin pot dictators in our countries before. I just never thought I'd see it in the United States. And that what is going on here has all the symptoms uh, in the view of outsiders um, of what you normally see in authoritarian states or in failing states. In other words, the institutions end up being hijacked by a man or by a family for their uh, advancement of their self-interest, whether it's economic self-interest or political self-interest, and that that is, in fact, what's happening here. Um, Now, the Republican response to this, and and we've had the White House's battered children uh, on television defending it, you know, Kellyanne Conway and Sean Spicer, who both look like, you know, they're sent out there to say, no, daddy still loves us, and I bumped my head on the door. Um, you know, uh, you know, this is a hello, my name is Luca reference that you guys can go and look up later. Um, the, you know, the, they, they're saying, well, this is normal. And why are the Democrats complaining? And this guy, Comey, um, uh, was uh, uh, mishandled the Hillary Clinton thing. And we're standing up for Hillary Clinton. You guys should all love us for that. So, Ben, you know some of these players. You know Comey. You know Rod Rosenstein. Is this normal? Is this the way the, 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 the federal government should be working? Well, to ask that question is also to answer it. Uh, no, it's not normal. There's nothing normal about it. Uh, first of all, it's not actually normal to remove the FBI director at all. The FBI director is appointed for a term of 10 years. It's actually never happened, has it? No, it has happened. It, uh, 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 director Sessions was removed. Uh, for uh, quite gross ethical misconduct that was the subject of a lengthy investigative Uh, report and Clinton removed him after that report was issued. Um, Look, it's not normal to remove the FBI director. It is really not normal to remove the FBI director while he's in, uh, in the midst of an investigation of your own campaign's ties to an adversary foreign intelligence power. Uh, and in the context, oh, well, you put it that way, Ben. Yeah, exactly. And it is, by the way, really not normal uh, to uh, remove the FBI director for stated reasons that are opposite to the views that you've taken on the same issues up until the very moment you remove the FBI director for them. So, you know, up until the day he removed Jim Comey for. Uh, you know, being unfair to Hillary Clinton, the only uh, criticisms that Trump made of Comey was for not being harsher on Hillary Clinton. 
and he actually gave a lot of praise to some of the decisions that Comey made, which now form the basis for his removal. None of that is normal. Here are some other things that aren't normal. There's no evidence in Rosenstein's memo uh, that he even talked to Comey about the allegations and and conduct that form the basis of the removal. It is not normal to remove the FBI director for uninvestigated uh, uh, conduct. It is also really not normal if you're going to remove the FBI director to do it so that he finds out about it while giving a speech to his agents in a field office outside of Washington when it shows up on television and he thinks it's a prank. So, no, there's nothing normal about it. It's banana republic behavior and it's um, it will cast to, – to go back to your original question, it will cast the United States in a bad light abroad. It should uh, and it should cast the conduct of its government in a bad light to its own people. Well, I want to turn to David in a second, but I want to ask you a follow-up question, Ben, because I follow you on Twitter. I follow Lawfare. Everything you do, I, I follow and then we try to imitate it here at Foreign Policy. <laughs> You're very kind. Um, but one of the tweets that I actually saw you write said that you knew Rod Rosenstein and uh, that you had had a lot of respect for him and that this has made you change your view. Yeah, I mean, I, and I don't say that with any glee in my heart. I, I Rod is somebody whom I've known for a long time in a lot of different capacities uh, that he's served in over the years, uh, and I've always thought highly of. Um, and um, I mean, I, I, I first uh, knew him in the '90s when I was a young reporter, and he was. Uh, you know, one of the staffers on the Ken Starr investigation. I've always thought of him as an, a, a sort of apolitical public servant who works in administrations of both parties. Uh, I was delighted when Trump named him deputy attorney general, and I spent a lot of time reassuring anxious Democrats that nothing too terrible would happen at the Justice Department with Rod there as deputy attorney general. Uh, I couldn't be more shocked and scandalized by the text of his memo, which strikes me as um, the stuff of bad op-eds. And I used to edit bad op-eds for a living. Um, and I agree, and I've written plenty of bad op-eds. You know, yeah, some of them for him. <laughs> and, and, and this is, you know, this is a it's a shocking document to be produced by by the Deputy Attorney General of the United States under the circumstances in which it was produced, which is two weeks after his confirmation and within a few hours of its being produced, the New York Times and Politico were reporting that uh, the demand for a rationale for Comey's firing was coming from the White House because of Russia stuff. And so the whole basis of it, which is that this is all about fairness you know, the, the restoration of the regular order at the Justice Department uh, is been very quickly, uh, you know, cast into significant factual doubt. Well, and, and just to add three points to that as I turn to David, one, um, there was an IG investigation going on in the Justice Department about just this issue, which this seems to have subvented or 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 in uh, in in other ways uh, decided to ignore and take action before it was done to 
ostensibly this was done to support the morale of the FBI, of course, pulling the rug out from the FBI director in front of FBI agents certainly doesn't do that. Um, and uh, three, you know, the president who asked for this pretext, which he got in the form of this letter, and uh, it's really quite curious and we'll come back to that in a bit, um, wrote a letter uh, to Comey firing him in which the only thing he mentioned was Russia. He didn't actually mention the other stuff and he did it in the weirdest possible way saying, well, you three times said I'm not under investigation but nevertheless – I'm going to fire you. In, in other words, sort of implying that if, in fact, I was under the investigation, then that would definitely be a pretext for firing you. But, David, let's get to this this core issue. The Times has reported, Politico has reported that essentially Trump's been flipping out in the White House over the pressure from this Russia thing, thought it would go away. It wasn't going away and was looking for a way to quash it um, and that this is not um, – uh, you know, based on the Hillary Clinton thing at all, but it's based on the Russia thing. What's 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 your take on that, and 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 what's the evidence to back up your take? Well, first, David, if it was based on the Hillary Clinton investigation, the first question is why now? Nothing has changed in the Hillary Clinton uh, investigation really since last fall. Really, in some ways, since last summer, but but certainly since uh, Director Comey, whether it was wise or unwise opened and then shut again the, the door on that investigation. So if he was this was really about that subject, you would have think you would have thought the president would have acted in January or February. Secondly, if you follow the tweets, if you follow the public statements of White House spokesmen, clearly the what's been on the president's mind has been the Russia investigation. The only time Hillary's the Hillary investigation has come up has been for him to say, "Gee, she really got nice treatment by um, uh, by Mr. Comey." And I want to read to you something that I thought was quite telling that Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's the deputy press secretary, said uh, in an interview uh, on Tuesday night on uh, Fox News. She was talking to Tucker Carlson, and he asked about how the termination of Comey would impact the Russia investigation. I do, by the way, I love the image of, of, of David Sanger sitting at home watching Tucker Carlson. I'm not, I didn't actually watch it. I am reading to you from the transcript of it, however. Okay. Here's her answer. I think the bigger point on that is, my gosh, Tucker, when are they going to let that go? It's been going on for nearly a year. Frankly, it's kind of getting absurd. There's nothing there. Then she added, it's time to move on. Frankly, it's time to focus on the things the American people care about. So what has President Trump done? This, by the way, is the line that she also offered on Morning Joe. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, you today, know, this is so. part of the script that, that they've all had out there. So what has the president done with this? First, he's actually forced a couple of Republicans to call for either a separate congressional committee, a separate investigative committee outside Congress, a special prosecutor or some kind of special counsel. We haven't had many, but we've had some. Secondly, he's reinvigorated the investigations into all of these things. He's probably assured that whatever time period it was going to last, a year, a year and a half, it's now going to be longer. Thirdly, he's put himself in the position of having to pick a successor FBI director who is going to have to vow and promise 
at many times that he will conduct an independent investigation. Now, we may believe that or we may not, but what you do know is that the Justice Department bureaucracy and the FBI, which has been known to leak before, think about the Hillary investigation, is really going to leak now, right? So you're going to see a flood more. At least the FBI, by and large, had confidence internally that Director Comey was conducting a real investigation. If they have any doubts about his successor, you know how that's going to end up. And the last thing is, Jim Comey isn't going away. He's now officially a private citizen. He can still testify tomorrow if he so chooses in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee, which was what he was supposed to go do tomorrow. And so I'm not sure they thought this one completely through. It's not as if they've erased from his memory banks everything he knows about the investigation thus far. Okay, I'm going to ask you a follow-up, and then I want to go to Ben, and then we're going to bring Colin into the conversation here. But the follow-up is, you mentioned that there will be leaks from the FBI. I saw today uh, General Mike Hayden, um, a former very senior intelligence official, said it's becoming harder and harder for him not to view the United States as Nicaragua. Uh, and I wonder how the intelligence community is going to respond to this. They also are sitting on bunches of information and whether you think that may also be a source of pushback uh, to what they might see as Trump manipulation of the story. It, it could be. It's a little hard to predict. But there is one pattern since uh, President Trump has taken office. Every time that the president tries to circumvent the existing bureaucratic structure, as he did with the executive orders by not circulating them around. The leaks have increased, driven by people who want to make sure that other senior officials see the material that is being developed within the White House. So when those first executive orders on immigration, for example, or on uh, closing, I'm sorry, keeping Gitmo open and reopening uh, uh, black sites, uh, some executive order that in the end has never come out, were first drafted. They got leaked, I'm pretty certain, because people wanted to make sure that the likes of Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, or Mike Pompeo, the CIA director, saw them in case they weren't seeing them in the interagency process. I suspect in this case you're going to see a parallel. By the way, this is kind of an interesting phenomenon within this administration. We learned uh, very recently that uh, people in the White House sought to get uh, the the Prime Minister of Canada's involvement in pushing back on Trump's views on NAFTA, and they reached out. You know, in other words, you have people who are sort of trapped in the house, sending signals to people on the outside, help saying, me. "Help me, help me! You've <laughs> got to help us out here." Ben, look, I want to amplify on something that David just said, which is that uh, you know what you had before was Comey FBI director. And what you've got now is Comey Unbound. And that is from a, 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 a Trump administration per, uh, perspective, not perhaps the greatest trade in the world. Well, you know Comey well, right? Uh, it is a matter of public record that we're friends. Um, so, look, so, but I mean, l l l without, without talking about anything you know, that implicates our relationship, let me just say one of the things that is very obvious about Jim Comey is that he is somebody who, with a propensity 
to say what's on his mind in a very candid way. This is what's actually gotten him in trouble in the Clinton stuff is a, is a sort of, from a lot of people's perspective, an excess of disclosure and candor. Uh, he's somebody who's relatively subtextless in the sense that you know, if you want to know why he's doing something – uh, you ask him and he – you know, if he can't answer it, he says, I can't answer that. But if he can answer it, he'll give you an answer even if you're a congressional committee and other people wouldn't talk about it. Uh, and what the president did by removing him is he dramatically increased the list of things that it's ethical and appropriate for Comey to talk about in public. So he still can't talk about investigative stuff. He still can't talk about classified stuff. But you know, just as uh, Sally Yates was in a position uh, earlier this week to talk about her interactions with uh, Don McGahn uh, in a bureaucratic sense, uh, you know, if Comey has stories to tell now, you've just removed all of the uh, the equities he will have in in. Uh, being part of a bureaucratic process that inhibits people from from telling stories in in real time, and and I imagine the amount of information that certain congressional committees potentially get to put in public as a result of testimony from Jim Comey just went up by a lot. So, Khan, um, you know we've we've talked about some of the underlying pretexts for this thing, which don't stand up really to to scrutiny. Um, and the reasons they don't stand up to scrutiny. They don't stand up to scrutiny based on timing. They don't stand up to scrutiny because there's stories in the press of people in the White House saying that's not actually true. You know, They don't stand up to uh, scrutiny because they don't withstand any kind of logical analysis. Another reason they don't stand up to scrutiny is that there's another pattern. And the other pattern is Sally Yates was fired. Preet Bharara was fired. Three different people who are conducting three different investigations or involved in investigations in the Trump administration were fired, all for different pretexts. And yet it seems like a really bad job to have in this administration is the job of investigating the president. And that, perhaps greater than the Comey thing, has a chilling effect on people who actually you know, may want to keep their jobs. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. You know, one of the talking points coming out of the administration is, look, he didn't fire the entire FBI, right? There's still others who are there. There's others involved in the investigation. So, uh, you know, if there's something there, it can continue. But on the one hand, you have the deputy spokesperson saying, but they should kill the investigation because there's nothing there. You have this bizarre statement by Trump in his, you know, his letter talking about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the statement talking about why he fired Comey saying, he assured me uh, that uh, – that uh, I'm not personally under investigation. Nevertheless, <laughs> uh, I think he should be fired uh, uh, anyway. Uh, and so clearly they're sending signals that anybody who stands up uh, to the president of the United States inside the bureaucracy trying to do their job, trying to uh, protect the Constitution is in jeopardy. Uh, and uh, you know, let's hope it doesn't uh, have the chilling effect, uh, David, that that uh, you predict and that I worry about. But I, but I think that it could. Uh, the one the one I think saving grace is I think they miscalculated what the response uh, would be here in thinking that this would somehow put Democrats in a bind because of you know what Comey did uh, prior to the election and uh, related to Hillary Clinton, and therefore it would somehow him in. Uh, Democrats and others from somehow criticizing uh, Trump for doing what he did. That was a major miscalculation. I think that the move that they did so overcranked uh, and looked so desperate and looked like the president was so worried about all the Russiagate stuff 
that it could actually uh, create a lot more uh, uh, you know, pressure uh, to make sure there's an independent investigation. And if that happens, hopefully it'll, it'll fall outside the, bound, the bounds of the president to be able to meddle with it. But, I mean, as we saw with Watergate, you, know, you could appoint a special prosecutor and you know, Nixon fired that guy and Trump could fire a special prosecutor this time. So I think it's really up to uh, the Congress uh, uh, to decide um, uh, how best uh, they can move forward and whether Republicans actually have a spine. I think somebody uh, uh, tweeted this morning, it's a, it's a test about whether the Republican Party cares about the Republican Party or the Republic. Uh, and I think that that's probably true. Okay, I want to come to Corey in a second because she, uh, her piece talks a little bit about the role the Congress has to play here. And I think you know, some of these next steps are the things we have to talk about. But Colin, I, d- I want to follow up on something you just said, which, you know, gets to a point that strikes me about this, right? You know, there are ethical issues here. Uh, there are clearly legal uh, issues uh, here within this administration. Uh, th- th- there's some policy differences we might take with them. Uh, uh, we'll come back to the fact that the president's followed up this firing with a meeting uh, with foreign minister of Russia, even though Russia just days ago attacked one of our most important allies in the same way they attacked us, so such a meeting might not seem like a good idea. But when you he take, wants to offer Lavrov the director position at the FBI, that's so an, well, it's it's an it's interesting open. idea. Lavrov is laughing about this and making jokes. It is useful actually to have somebody in the director position who actually speaks Russian. If you're no, no, it's uh, right because you can understand your direction better. But but um, but. There's something else that's core to this, and you've very recently been in an administration. These guys are just terrible at governing. I mean, they're just really, really bad at it. David was talking about the fact that that um, you know, th- th- you know, they didn't think there was going to be blowback on this thing, and they didn't actually go out and seed the clouds with Republicans to help them out, and they didn't come up with a, a replacement that might have helped make this case better. They didn't lay the groundwork for this, and every single day they do something that just shows you probably shouldn't elect a bunch of people who don't know how to run the government, who then surround themselves with other people who don't know how to run the government, because you're going to end up with a complete shit show in the White House that blows up every day in some new way. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really important point. Look, I I, I tend to be one uh, who has been long skeptical of conspiracy theories, especially as it relates to governments, right? Like, you know, the United States planned 9-11 or you name any other terrible uh, off-base conspiracy theory because, you know, you big governments uh, have complicated bureaucracies and – you know, 99 times out of 100, there actually isn't a grand conspiracy. It's that something just goes wrong. There's incompetence or it's government doing its thing. And that's when government works perfectly well. Uh, uh, the perfect storm that the Trump administration represents is that they are both – there's elements of both uh, incompetence and conspiracy at the same time undermining the functioning of a reasonable government. You have factions within the White House who are like you know the Game of Thrones, although I think somebody said in Politico the other day it was more like the, the Game of Morons or maybe uh, – First uh, of know, all, it was, was in foreign, foreign policy. policy. It was. It was in First of all, it was foreign it policy. Was. And secondly, the line was Game of Thrones for morons, which to me was like headline of the week. Yeah. You know, but – 
So, so I think you've got these factions that all have their knives out for one another, that all have their own PR firms, and that are all racing uh, to not only have the ear of the president, but somehow to follow up on some crazy tweet that he had to prove the president was right when he just made stuff up. Uh, and uh, the president himself is completely undisciplined and rather unhinged. Uh, and as a, as a result, you just – they're not functioning well. I mean I think yesterday was uh, – I mean when the, when the news broke, uh, you know, Spicer – it wasn't clear that he knew about it. He didn't know about the timing. They weren't going to talk about it. Then they were going to talk about it. I mean, even little things, they just they just looked like the Keystone cops. And meanwhile, there are hundreds and hundreds of key national security positions they refuse to fill uh, throughout the government. So, yeah, they've picked a handful of decent cabinet officials, although, frankly, I don't know how decent uh, individuals like Jim Mattis or H.R. McMaster can stay in administration that is this vile in some in, in some respects. Um, but they've just they're, – they're not good at it. They don't know how to govern. It was clear during the transition when they were interacting with us. They had no idea what they're doing and they've gone forward not knowing what uh, uh, they're doing. And when you mix in layers of actual conspiracy over incompetence, you have the worst of all worlds. Yeah. Well, you know, they're going to it's going to lead them all to some great jobs. I can just see five years from now, Sean Spicer advising the deputy prime minister of Kazakhstan on their press strategy, um, because that's where he's certainly going to end up. Crisis communications. Don't you think there's a future in that? Yeah. Great. <laughs> Emphasis <laughs> right. on crisis. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. We make the crisis. We solve the crisis. Um, or we, pour, we, we light the fire. We pour gasoline on the fire. Corey, one of the main points that you make in your article is that the responsibility now shifts to the Congress uh, and to in sp specifically to Republicans in the Congress. Now, some Republicans in the Congress have come out and said they are troubled by this. Uh, uh, Jeff Flake, uh, Ben Sass, uh, uh, Burr, was Burr, the most important Burr, one. Burr yes. who, yeah. who, who runs an intelligence committee, et cetera. Uh, some others – you know, like Mitch McConnell, have sort of taken the straight party line. Now, his wife works for the president, so, you know, that might have had something to do with it. Um, what can we and, – and, and by the way, there was a division in the voices of courage in the Republican Party on this where John McCain was uh, uh, unhappy with this. Lindsey Graham got on TV and started defending it, which I found a little bit bizarre. Um, uh, what What should the Republicans on the Hill do and then – what can we expect? I'm one of those uh, snobby establishment Republicans who signed all the Never Trump letters. Uh, so it probably won't surprise ER nerds that that I think Republicans in Congress are missing a huge opportunity to be principled rather than support a president who I think is leading the party to perdition. Uh, but I do think he is leading the party to perdition. And I think firing the attorney general, excuse me, firing the FBI director the same week that subpoenas get issued on the Russia probe, it just looks so bad that supporting it uh, really cuts into any any remaining notions that we are a party of principle. And I think it's wonderful that the moral conscience voices like Ben Sass and John um, spoke out, but uh, they were predictable and they are sure looking lonely this morning when, when the leadership in the Congress appears to be either believing that President Trump is justified in doing this 
or that the once-in-a-generation opportunity to pass conservative legislation makes it, because we control both houses of Congress and the presidency, makes it worth holding your nose and supporting this. And I just think that's a political error in addition to being an ethical error. I think this is, I am convinced that this is the crossing of the Rubicon moment for the Republican Party. And if we continue to support the president uh, violating the norms that underwrite the law, um, we we are going to deserve our fate. And that fate is going to be a chasm of trust with the American public and with people in the other party who are not our enemies, they are just our opposition politically, we're going to deserve what's coming to us. Yeah, well, that's that's true. Um, I noticed uh, this morning, Laura Rosen, who used to write here at Foreign Policy, sent out a tweet to uh, that said, does Paul Ryan's silence have a Twitter handle yet? Um, you know, another <laughs> profile in Courage, uh, Paul Ryan uh, also known as the world's largest invertebrate, um, uh, the vice president came out and said that this was his his the Trump's choice was solely and exclusively based on his commitment to the best interests of the American people. Uh, but of course, the vice president is a hand puppet who's going to do whatever he can because if he just waits there long enough, uh, he could well be the next president of the United States. He's also been lied to before, apparently. He, apparently, been lied to before. Well, apparently, I, I have to say. The more we learn about the Flynn story, the more we sort of see what the coordination was and, 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 and all of this. And the fact that, you know, Pence was overseeing all this stuff in the transition, I'm not sure I buy the story that he was lied to. Uh, and again, this is an administration that is, is, is developing a reputation for shabby pretext shopping. And they look for a pretext and then they act on the, on, on the pretext. That is a great phrase, David. Shabby pretext shopping. Yeah, well, it's it seems to be what they do. And it's by the way, it's what you know, uh, sort of lying dirtbag businessmen like Trump do all the time. You know, he, I, you know, I think he's managed to sort of talk his way out of a lot of crap in his life, and all of a sudden he discovers he's president of the United States, and there are all these mechanisms that don't let you do that anymore. Should we have faith in those mechanisms working, Ben? I mean, do, or or is it possible that what happens here is that Trump gets away with this because the Republicans on the Hill choose to do absolutely nothing? So I think faith is a distinctly overrated democratic emotion. And, uh, you know, the, the hashtag I have been using the past few months is pray with a raised fist. Uh, and, you know, I think you got to believe in the system. Um, but part of believing in the system is making the system work. And it's not, it's not something where you sit back and assume that all these mechanisms are self-executing. David, just to put this into some other kind of context, uh, the president of the United States met today with the foreign minister of Russia. Private meeting, no photos, White House press corps not invited. Now it turns out, State Department isn't even doing a briefing after the meeting, but the Russians are. This is amazing. I mean, first of all, somebody should have said, 
don't have this meeting today. Secondly, the Russians who attacked us, they didn't meddle in the election. The use of this word meddling makes it sound like somebody's nana meddling in their, you know, social life. The Russian, or, or Scooby-Doo. You, or know, Scooby- you, you, you darn meddling kids. Yeah, right, right. But, but, but you know, right, get off the lawn. That's, that's Jeez, not, it's a Scooby-Doo reference? And, hey, look, I'm giving Colin props because he made a pop culture reference that you actually got. Uh, <laughs> does, does this mean that we're actually going to get mugs with Scooby-Doo on so them on could one be. side and the it's, ER on the other? It, yeah. could, it could be, although the demand for the deep state sweatshirts is so high. That's what's definitely coming next. But – you know, there is a foreign policy dimension to this story. In fact, this could be the biggest foreign policy uh, scandal in American history, certainly since the 18th century. And I'm sure Corey was going to bring that up in a second. Um, yeah. uh, but uh, isn't this absolutely bizarre? And, you know, you write more. You, you, you want to share a Pulitzer Prize for writing about the Russians and the hacking. Isn't this... Um, the silence on Russia, on the hack, is is one of the biggest things that that I that I think is outrageous about this, which is Trump foreign policy when it comes to critical effort, elements of U.S. national security is crazy. It's 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 totally reckless. It's contrary to American interests. And so we can talk about the legalities and the Congress and the politics of this thing. It's also hurting us in terms of our national security. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So let me let me try to take just a few of them. Um, first, there might be a worse day to have the Russians in the White House for the first time and first meeting with the president of the United States. But right now, I'm having a hard time thinking about what that worst day might be. Okay. Second. Well said, David. As as some of uh, Collins' uh, uh, compatriots or former compatriots in the Obama administration pointed out to me, um, Lavrov frequently wanted to go see um, President Obama. And usually, and Colin, jump in here if I've got this one wrong, they wouldn't let it happen because they didn't want to be in the position of sort of rewarding the Russians with a meeting, particularly after the Russia hack began to happen and so forth. So there was one between Obama and Putin. Also, Um, Lavrov, I mean, just for ER nerds out there who aren't following this closely, you know, is widely known as somebody with – very little power in Russia and is seen purely as a hand puppet of they, Putin. But they, they also tr- don't want him in the White House because they're afraid he'll measure for the drapes. <laughs> <laughs> he also has an extraordinarily puckish sense of humor. You can't help but like Lavrov. And so this morning, as he was headed in to uh, see uh, Tillerson, uh, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, uh, gave, you know, some very bland, you know, welcome to the State Department. We're glad you're here for these important conversations kind of things. And somebody yells a question at Lavrov that says, is there a cloud over this meeting? It was Andrea Mitchell. I think, was it Andrea? I couldn't. Yeah. It was off camera. It sounded like Andrea, but I, I, I wasn't certain. And Lavrov said, oh, was Comey fired? You're kidding me. You're kidding me. So he was he was um, mocking the uh, the set of events as if he didn't know about it. Um, it looks like uh, there will be a little bit of access for the White House pool into the meeting 
uh, with um, uh, the president. But you really would like to be a fly on the wall to know what they discussed. First of all, they've got to set up a first meeting between uh, President Trump and President Putin, probably this summer, probably on the edges of a, of a summit meeting uh, that they'll both be attending anyway. That's just gotten to be a lot more fraught. Um, secondly, we have a big agenda with the Russians right now, whether to go ahead with this Russian plan for safe zones in Syria, whether or not the sanctions remain on uh, on Ukraine. My read of these events is those sanctions are never coming off from Ukraine. I can't imagine anybody in the Senate before the firing of Jim Comey uh, voting to remove those sanctions, but truly now. Thirdly, you didn't hear not, you mean Mike Flynn lied to Sergey Kislyak that will take care of that will take care of the sanctions. It, it may turn out to be a, a you know maybe he didn't know he was lying at the time. Um, uh, the third interesting thing is you did not hear from Tillerson and Lavrov on substance this time. I went to the Moscow uh, visit last month, and it was notable for a few things. First of all, the two of them couldn't agree on the question of whether the Syrians were responsible for the chemical attack. Secondly, Tillerson had to get out and basically in front of Lavrov accuse the Russians again of the interference in the election. And let me take a small issue with something that you said, David, because we spent so much time talking about cyber on this broadcast. I'm not sure that I would call what they did here a cyber attack. It was a plain, old-fashioned Russian information operation that got accelerated by cyber means and spread much further than the old ones used to. But if information operations become, begin to be seen as an attack, then a lot of things we're doing out in the world, even discussion of spreading democracy, can be categorized the same way. And I'm not quite sure I'd go use that phrase. Well, I, I, I don't think this has ever happened before, but I disagree with you. If you use it happened last week. If it, if you use cyber <laughs> methods to uh, steal documents from the Democratic National Committee, it's and called then you, cyber espionage, right? And then you hand them off to WikiLeaks and you distribute them in the middle of an election that's at called key doxing. moments. Yeah, yeah, that's a cyber attack. Now it's not. You know, a denial of service attack. It's not a, a, an it's attack. Not making that, centrifuges blow up. Or no, it's, it's, it's not I, 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 I think. I think. Uh, I think you're using different terminology, but I'm not sure you're saying different things. Uh, usually, in in the in the cybersecurity community, normally you reserve the word cyber attack for something that's designed to effectuate a malicious outcome with respect to the systems that you're compromising, and you use the term. Uh, 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 cyber espionage or exploitation to refer to mere exfiltration of information. This is why you've invited Wittes on, because we actually needed somebody to lay out the legal basis for why Rothkopf was wrong even again. ER, no, 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 no. Even, I, ER I, I, nerds, <laughs> even ER nerds are slumping forward in their seat no, 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 at no. the pedantry of all of this. Uh, no, no, I, all I'm saying is you're not disagreeing about what happened here. You're merely disagreeing about what Had to call it. That's right. Uh, and so, so, so I'm not sure the distinction is a distinction that's imp especially important. It, no, no. I think it's a distinction without a difference. And I would add, just with respect to what Ben said, that they use cyber means to disrupt a system. As it happened, the system they were disrupting was not exclusively a cyber system. It was the U.S. elections, which have information components and other components. But let's, let's, let's set aside the use of the term cyber and note that the Russians undertook an operation 
to undermine U.S. democracy. They have done the same thing with respect to French democracy, and it just didn't German work democracy, yeah, right. et cetera, et cetera. Not only didn't it work, it, it backfired. It, it did blow up on uh, them. Yeah. Uh, and Macron got a 33% boost post And the everyone last saw them coming, as we reported in The Times today, which which tells you the fragility of these kinds of cyber operations. Right. But, but here's the point. The Russians, as we have known since 2015, have sought to undermine our election and other elections. They have done so bald-facedly. They have done so with the encouragement of candidate Trump and with the defense of President Trump. Um, and it's bad for democracy. It undercuts, even if the outcomes don't go their way, uh, it, it, it's certainly damaging and it may have actually played a role in tipping the scales in our last election. And that's really bad, Colin. And the president's rewarding Lavrov. And the reason Lavrov is there is because Tillerson was in Moscow and they said, the next thing is you meet with Lavrov and then we'll set up the Putin meeting and it'll be on the edge of the summit which Putin shouldn't even be at because of all of this kind of stuff. And it's about rewarding the Russians as much as they possibly can, given everything else that's going wrong. Yeah, look, I think narrowly it may be tactically about uh, the Syria stuff. Uh, but I, I think I'm, I'm where David is. It's hard to imagine worse timing. I, I, I think uh, – uh, sorry, David Sanger. Uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> David, I'm also, where, I'm also where you are when it comes to – look – you know, people can disagree about whether the primary Russian objective was to defeat or just wound Hillary Clinton or make Trump the president. But we know for sure that what the Russians hoped uh, to do when they uh, interfered with our election, when they uh, hacked and uh, used that hacking and dissemination of informa information as part of a broad uh, information campaign that involved internet trolls and bots and fake news and uh, uh, propaganda and a whole bunch of other uh, tools, maybe even some financial ones, uh, their goals were to disrupt our democracy and uh, to undermine faith in our democracy as part and parcel of a broader agenda of undermining liberal democracies in the West uh, more broadly. And from that perspective, it's hard to argue that the Russians you know, shouldn't be landing on an aircraft carrier with a big banner that says mission accomplished. I mean, think of what they've gotten from the Trump administration. They've gotten an administration, a president uh, uh, who embraces autocrats at every turn, Sisi, Duterte, uh, saying he'd be honored to meet uh, with Kim, congratulating Erdogan on the phone for backsliding uh, on democracy. You name it, uh, embracing autocrats across the world, not a, a secretary of state who refuses to stand up for human rights or democracy anywhere and basically says our relationships will no longer be associated with our values. You have widespread concerns that the president uh, is Putin's poodle, uh, which undermines our allies' faith, especially in Europe, uh, that we have their best interests at stake. And Trump has given them plenty of ammunition for that. You see that you know even as as you know maybe McMaster and Mattis and others have tried to encourage uh, Trump to tack back to the center a bit on embracing our allies. He still his impulse is to basically treat NATO or our alliance with South Korea as a protection racket. That is, we'll only protect you if you pay up, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from the Germans or forcing the South Koreans to pay uh, for Thad. Uh, you know, reportedly being furious at McMaster for walking that back. But anyway, he treats our our sacred uh, treaty allies as if it's a Extortion racket. And you're already seeing that in uh, the South Korean elections, for example, many of our Democratic allies are more freaked out about Trump than they are freaked out about 
nuclear-armed adversaries next door and are electing people who are more skeptical of us and more inclined uh, to work uh, with the North Koreans because they view Trump as a crazy person. And now – and all of this, by the way, was happening before what he did with Comey. And all the stuff that he's doing to undermine confidence not only here in the United States but abroad in the rule of law in the United States risks shattering our you know, image not only as a shining city on a hill but frankly the faith and confidence that other countries, uh, democratic allies who we rely on for everything from beating ISIS to climate change to Ebola, you name it. We can't do a single thing in the world without our democratic allies. They simply don't have faith uh, that we're staying true to our principles. And what's so interesting about not just the French election but also the election in the Netherlands is that they're, they're basically so freaked out about Trump that it's encouraging them to do the right thing in their own elections. But So it's good. I'm glad that the elections are going the way that they are. But I think it's an indication that they actually don't want to be America right now. They don't want to be America. And in a world where even our closest democratic allies don't want to be with us, don't value us, don't respect us, and don't have faith that we'll live up to our commitments, that's a very dangerous world for the United States. All right. Last round. Corey, you know, one of the things that all the Trump bots and the racist morons that supported them um, uh, uh, you know, accuse uh, critics of Trump of being as, you know, hysterical. You're getting overly worked up, you know, calm down. You're a snowflake. Well, you know, you know, let's let's try to look at this this calmly. The president of the United States has fired three people who are investigating his Russia ties. We don't know where the Russia investigation will go. We don't know whether it will find collusion. Uh, we don't know what the president's ties to Russia are, although the Senate has started to seek uh, financial information. We don't know whether that actually includes tax information to explore the nature of his ties. Uh, we don't know whether other investigations will emerge regarding Trump ties to other governments, whether or, you know, or or how he has been compromised by other activities. Um, we don't know any of this. Let's assume none of it goes anywhere. What's the toll? Oh, I think the toll is enormous. Uh, as you all know, I very seldom agree with Colin, but he's right on this one, right? That um, that was the, the most backhanded compliment to Colin <laughs> that I could possibly imagine. <laughs> um, he's sitting here. Smiling. He's smiling a very confident, relaxed smile, by the way. I just want you to know that it's. That <laughs> um, you know, the American dominance in the international order is dramatically facilitated by our values, which is why the Secretary of State's comments uh, are ignorant and damaging. His comments that values are somehow, you know, necessary to trade off against America's interests in the world, as opposed to the challenge of diplomacy being to find ways to do both. Uh, and, and we look like we are not a shining beacon of democracy, and that's going to drive up the cost to everything that we try and do in the world, because it makes it harder for our friends to help us. It makes us uh, look like 
what we preach to others about the importance of the rule of law, that we're a country of laws, not of men, that institutions matter and norms matter and respect for a vibrant, rollicking, irritating, independent media um, is essential in free societies. We are not modeling any of that behavior either by a Republican president or by the Republicans in Congress. And so my, my, what helps me sleep at night is that not all of the checks and balances in American public life, or even some of the most important ones, aren't in the control of the government. Uh, David Sanger, I hope you are smiling a beatific smile at the moment, since you're since you embody uh, this, the important checks and balances from outside the government. I can attest that David's to... smile is indeed beatific. In fact, there's a, certain, there's a certain kind of glow usually associated with holy people around Sanger at all times. <laughs> um, uh, so so let, me, let me ask a question here. Um, you know, John McCain um, uh, has, has suggested that there were many shoes yet to drop. You know, that he keeps using that metaphor. And frankly, I think of the potential number of shoes that could drop here. Um, he used the metaphor of a centipede. Um, I think DSW might be a better centipede, you know, a be- better example, better metaphor here. Because I think, <laughs> you know, there is a whole, you know, mini department store full of shoes that might be dropped. Ben, today, the New York Times, employers of David Sanger for nearly half a century... <laughs> Um, uh, 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 has reported that days before he was fired, James Comey, the former FBI director, asked the Justice Department for a significant increase in money and personnel for the Bureau's investigation into Russia's interference in the presidential election. He asked for the resources during a meeting last week with Rod Rosenstein who apparently didn't mention that he was about to be fired. And then Comey went on to brief uh, people uh, in Congress that he had had this this uh, series of questions. It would seem to me that it might be bad for the Trump administration if further evidence emerged that the reason that Comey was fired was that he was doing the Russia investigation. Oh, I think that information has already emerged. I mean, I think that's the significance of the stories last night, uh, to which are, by the way, entirely sourced to White House officials uh, about the temper tantrums that Trump was having about uh, Russia. They weren't about mysteriously. They weren't about the handling of the Hillary Clinton matter months and months ago. They were about uh, the ongoing inability to quell the Russia story. Look. I mean, let me – this is true of Jim Comey. It's true of any FBI director or any senior Justice Department official. You do not go up to Congress and announce that you are investigating in an ongoing counterintelligence investigation uh, the uh, connections between the president's campaign and a foreign adversarial intelligence service that – in that uh, interfered with, attacked the U.S. political system in the context of a presidential election 
unless there is a serious investigation of that matter. That does not mean that that statement that Comey made to the Congress a few weeks ago was not a statement that there are some casual things that we're looking at or that there are some open threads. It's a statement that there's a real investigation and it's going on. Otherwise, you just don't give that testimony. And so there's nothing surprising in the context of a public disclosure of the fact of that investigation and confirmation of a new deputy attorney general who is, by the way, for purposes of this investigation, the acting attorney general, that the FBI director would go to the deputy attorney general and say, look, here's the scope of the investigation uh, and here is the resource allocations that we're going to need to do this. Uh, and so I don't find this story remotely surprising. Uh, what is surprising is that having had that meeting and presumably having now been briefed on the seriousness and reality of this investigation, that Rod Rosenstein was nonetheless willing to participate in the removal of the FBI director within a week or two of that. Okay. We have to wrap up in two minutes. I want a 30-second response from David, Colin, and then Corey. Other shoe to drop. Uh, something else you're looking for to happen in this around the corner. 30 seconds. Well, I think the most important question actually comes out of the president's own statement that he was reassured by Comey three times, which we doubt that he wasn't the subject of an investigation. Well, if your investigation is moving forward from the very beginning at centipede kind of pace, the question is, could it eventually go to the president? I'm sure that Jim Comey is packing up his office today or having someone do it for him, not knowing the answer to that question. But Donald Trump doesn't know the answer to that question either. And that's the great mystery that's going on here, which is how much was he told by his associates, either during the campaign or during the transition, about their conversations with the Russians? Well, it also seems ludicrous that a serious law enforcement officer investing the Trump, investigating the Trump campaign would say that the president was yeah. not the target. I, I don't know Jim Comey as well as Ben does, but I would find it very hard to believe. Other shoe. I, I, think, I mean, I think all the shoes uh, that people know about, Flynn, uh, Manafort and Page, uh, Roger Stone. It's interesting that both Roger Stone and Carter Page were over the moon that Comey got fired. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that they're subjects of, of FBI investigations. But I actually think that one shoe that uh, may drop uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months is the possibility that there was collusion between the Trump uh, uh, campaign uh, and or its media allies and elements uh, within Russian intelligence that were aiming at uh, influencing social media uh, to sway uh, uh, Bernie voters and others in key swing states. And I think that's part of the collusion angle uh, that is not receiving enough attention that I suspect uh, there's more there there. Yeah. Well, and one sign of that, by the way, is Trump tweeting this morning that, you know, Roger Stone who? I, I haven't talked to Roger Stone in a long time. And Roger Stone is the one who was directly dealing with Guccifer and, and, and had communications right around the time of big releases, right? Corey, 30 seconds, a shoe or two. Russian money keeping the Trump business empire from bankruptcy. Okay. Also the Kushner business empire. Uh, I think these are things to to be looked at. Ladies and gentlemen, this was an exceptionally uh, uh, important issue of uh, uh, episode of the ER um, because what's happening is not normal. Uh, these are not just big developments. This is not just the media uh, getting exorcised. 
this is a constitutional crisis in the United States of America in which the president of the United States has undertaken to remove from office officials who have been simply doing their job and fulfilling their oath to the people of the United States and exploring what was happening in the Trump campaign during uh, the last election. Uh, it is uh, a threat to our system. And what happens in the next few days in terms of how the Congress responds, in terms of whether a special counsel or prosecutor is appointed uh, and wh what other shoes drop uh, is going to tell a lot about not just the future of Trump or Washington, but the future of America's role in the world. Please join us at upcoming episodes of the ER uh, to continue our discussions of this story. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, David. Thank you, Colin. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.